Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Jennifer Lin, author of Shanghai Faithful. Jennifer Lin, author of Shanghai Faithful, Betrayal and Forgiveness in a Chinese Christian Family. The family you write about in the book is your family. That's correct. It's my father's family. My father was part of the great migration of Chinese who came to the United States around 1949. And this was just before Shanghai fell to, to the Liberation Army. Well, when you decided you wanted to write this, how did you, you start? Brian, my father, Paul Lin, calls this book my obsession. And, and he's right. It has been an obsession of mine for a very long time. And I can actually pinpoint the moment this whole journey started. It was June 18th, 1979. I was a, going into my senior year at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. I lived in Philadelphia with, with my family. And my father, who had immigrated to the United States uh, in 1949, was very anxious to take us back to see his family in Shanghai. Remember, 1978, President Carter renewed full diplomatic relations with China. Up until that point, China had been a closed society, and communication with my father's family was very limited. They could write to us, but we always knew that the letters were being opened and read by, by the authorities. So when Carter renewed relations, my dad was very eager to go and see his, his family. He had a sister and a brother who had stayed behind. So he got visas for himself and for two of my sisters, and, and we went. And the first, you know, at the airport, it was such a happy reunion. And the first hours of the, the reunion were, you know, all sweetness and smiles. And then I went to bed that night. And the first morning, June 18th, 1979, I woke up. And I'm in my father's childhood home in Shanghai in the old international settlement. And I, it's just one of those scenes I'll never forget. I was standing on a second floor balcony looking out at the alleyway under, underneath. And uh, I heard my father coming down the steps and I turned around and I'll, uh, the look on his face, it was a combination of fear, anger, and profound sadness. And my father, you know, was a giant of a man in my mind. He was a neurosurgeon at Temple University. And, you know, to see him like that, it was like, what's wrong? And he told us that the night before, after we all went to bed, an uncle had pulled him aside and said to him, do you have any idea what happened to us since you've been gone? And the truth was, my father was clueless. He didn't have any idea what was going on. My family was unable to really communicate with us. My grandfather, who was an Anglican priest, studied in Philadelphia. He would write to us every single month. He wrote in beautiful English, and he would tell us about you know, what he had for dinner, a walk he took in the park, but he wasn't telling us really what was going on in the family. So this really was the start 
of my book. Uh, I asked the question, I wanted to know the answer actually. You know, what happened to them and why? And so my father, when we came home, this is 1979, he kind of took what he learned, he put it in a box and he put it away. You know, there was no way he could undo the past. There was no way he could help them through the Cultural Revolution, which was the real problem time. So he just moved on. And I was 20, I was at Duquesne, I was studying to be a reporter, and I just couldn't let go. And so over the course of the next 35 years or so, I just kept digging and digging and digging and piecing together the family story. You know, I spent a lifetime as a reporter. My first three years out of Duquesne, I was at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette covering the steel industry. And then I moved on to the Philadelphia Inquirer in 1983. And so I, I'm a reporter. I, I have the reporter's gene in me. And, and you know what it's like. You know, we can't stop asking questions. So once I found out, you know, really what happened to the family during the Cultural Revolution, which was a period of of real turmoil in China where, where churches were closed and people were turning on each other. There was a lot of violence and with Red Guards. But once I figured out kind of what happened to them during the Cultural Revolution, I only had more questions. And then it became, well, what happened to them in 1949 after the communists took hold? And then what happened before that? And, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, I grew up in the 60s. We were at war with Vietnam. It kind of wasn't cool to be ethnic, so I was half Chinese, my mother was Italian, but it wasn't something I was really in tune with. So, you know, when I went to China though as a 20-year-old, it's just like my world changed and my life view changed. And I just really wanted to know more about my relatives, starting with my grandparents. I never met them. Uh, I spoke to my grandfather once on a telephone call. This was 1972. Richard Nixon had just gone to China, and so there was a, a slight opening in the bamboo curtain, and we were allowed to place a phone call to Shanghai. And my grandfather, who, again, spoke English, was able to say hello, and that's about as far as I got. So I didn't know anything about him, and I really became intrigued about his life and the life of my grandmother. My grandmother had a younger brother. His name was Watchman Nee. It's a very unusual name. But he was a very, very influential Christian leader in China. And so he, he was very popular in 1949. And when the communists took over, he became a counter, he was declared a counter-revolutionary and sent to prison and died in a labor camp. So, you know, as I'm gathering the, the family history, I, I wanted to know about my grandfather. I wanted to know about my grandmother. I wanted to know about this Watchman Nee, you know, because all of them were very uh, devout Christians. So by researching the family story, I was really researching the history of the Protestant Christian uh, movement in China. And, and here's an interesting thing is uh, my, my grandfather, his name was the Reverend Lin Puji, and he was a Chinese Anglican priest. He actually had his training uh, here in Philadelphia. He went to the Episcopal Seminary, uh, which used to be in West Philadelphia. It has since closed. But he also went to the University of Pennsylvania for graduate school. So he was studying uh, both philosophy at Penn, and he was at the seminary. So when I sat down to write this book like eight years ago, after I'd done 
decades of research, I wanted to start it. I wanted the opening scene to be my grandfather on the SS Nanjing ship with a hundred other Chinese students sailing across the Pacific Ocean. This would have been 1918. And he was headed to, to California and then on to Philadelphia because he was going to enroll in the seminary in Penn. So, so that was going to be the beginning of the book. But I ended up you know, actually going farther back in time and beginning the book from the very beginning because he was a third generation Christian. When did Christianity start in China? When did the missions start there? So the first Christians were actually the Catholics and they were there in the 1700s. My book primarily focuses on the Protestant Christians and the first wave of Protestant missionaries was really after the Opium Wars. So the Opium Wars were in around 1850s, uh, around that time period. Could you explain what that was about? It was about opium and the trade of opium. And the British and the Americans uh, wanted to be able to trade with China. Ostensibly, it was a war fought over free trade, but really it was a war fought over keeping the opium trade active. Where well, was it being produced? Who was selling to who? So with the, with the opium production, um, what happened was, you know, in the 1800s, products from China were very popular with Westerners in Europe, in the United States, in Philadelphia. There were a lot of traders who were going over to, to China, and so they were buying up things like silk, porcelain, tea, they were, and they were selling it, uh, buying it, excuse me, and they didn't have a lot to sell the Chinese. So the British in particular were taking opium that was grown in India and selling it in China, and it was a very lucrative trade. And the, the Chinese, uh, you know, did not like to have opium sold, and so there were, there were many wars, there were two wars fought, many military skirmishes over the, the trade of opium. It was um, not legal in China at the time? Um, it was legal, I mean, it, there were periods where the, the emperor tried to make the trade of opium illegal, but it's like the United States today, like, Theoretically, the trade of drugs is not legal, but it, but it was happening. So, so there were wars that were fought primarily by the British. Uh, the British gunboats, you know, there were battles in, in the city of Canton, which is today known as Guangzhou. There were battles in, outside of Shanghai. And basically, the Qing uh, Empire lost, and they were forced to sign treaties that forced open ports for trade. The city of Fuzhou, where my family is from, was one of those cities. So with the traders came the missionaries. So the, the war over opium forced open China to foreigners. And so there was a great influx of, of missionaries, particularly from the United States and from Britain. Well, the, the earliest of your ancestors you write about is this old Lin. He was the first right. Christian, your great-great-grandfather. So as I said... What would have motivated him to convert to Christianity? It's a good question. That's one I had myself. Uh, why would someone convert to Christianity in a country steeped in the teachings of Confucius, Buddha, Taoism is, is very strong? And so I arrived at an answer by, by investigating through, you know, what was written at the time by missionaries primarily. But I was able to find out about my family going way back to the 1800s because the Chinese are very, uh, very much uh, into genealogical records. So 
uh, my branch of the family has what's called, you know, it's, it's a Lin ancestral hall. It's on the coast of Fujian province, which is in southern China. And at this ancestral hall, there is a book that's kept in a wooden binder, and it's pages and pages of records. So I was able to find the page for my branch of the family where, you know, the first convert, I call him Old Lin, um, it has a record of him when he was born, as well as his son and his grandsons, not grand, not granddaughters. So this would have been starting, uh, you know, in the, uh, his old Lin's son was born in 1871. How far back does the book go? Oh, uh, hundreds of years. Yes. So as I said, you know, genealogical records are very important for the Chinese who venerate the, their ancestors. So by going to this book, I was able to find out kind of when people were born. And once I found out when they were born, I was able to place them in the context of what was happening in China at the time. So Old Lin, the first convert, he was a fisherman. He was a peasant. He lived in coastal Fujian province. And at the time, this would have been like 1860s, the Anglican missionaries were very active in the province of Fujian, which is where my relatives are from and they first established their base in the city of Fuzhou, which was the capital. When they first got to Fuzhou, they weren't having much luck in converting people. Fuzhou was a very sophisticated city and it had a lot of scholars. And the scholars didn't really take too well to this message from these foreigners. They kind of looked down their nose at, at the, the missionaries and the traders, like who are they to tell China, the Middle Kingdom, you know, about life? So uh, the message kind of fell on hard ground. There was a missionary from England who came over. His name was John Wolfe. John Wolfe was an Irishman. He was the son of poor farmers. And he realized that the message had to go out to the common people in rural parts of Fujian province, that it, there would be a more receptive audience. And actually, my great-great-grandfather was one of those people. I mean, he's living the life of a peasant farmer, and it wasn't easy in China. It was hand to mouth. When you wrote, Old Lin knew some of his countrymen looked down on him, deriding him as nothing more than an opportunist who accepted the religion of foreigners only to fill his bowl with food. So what happened was, Old Lin went to work for the missionaries as a cook. So it was a way of finding a job, finding employment. So that's why some Chinese referred to those Chinese who converted as rice Christians, because they were doing it to fill their bellies. You know, Old Lin converted, you know, he became a Christian. His oldest son was educated by, by the missionaries. The missionaries are not always treated well by historians because they were viewed as people who were trying to force their their culture, their beliefs on a on another culture. So they were derided sometimes as cultural imperialists. But you have to give the missionaries a lot of credit because what they brought in addition to their beliefs, they brought schools to China. They opened hospitals. They they you know they 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 educated women girls as well as men and boys. So the cook's son, uh, his name was Lin Daoan, he was educated by the Anglican missionaries in Fuzhou. They saw some potential there in terms of his intellect and they then trained him to be a doctor. Now he didn't go to medical school per se, he was more, uh, he had a mentor. The mentor was a, a Scottish surgeon by the name of 
Birdwood von Summer and Taylor. So Dr. Taylor trained Dr. Lin to be a doctor, and they worked together in a small mission hospital in the, in the town of Funing, which is a coastal part of Fujian province. And in this little town, in this little mission hospital, two-thirds of the patients were opium addicts. Dr. Lin, my great-grandfather, then became a lifelong advocate against the opium trade. But he saw it firsthand. He saw what it was doing to, to the people of China, and he was treating them. So Dr. Lin was then introduced to a teacher, my great-great-grandmother, who was also the daughter of peasants. She was educated by the missionaries, too, and they kind of played matchmaker and put the teacher and the doctor together. And their oldest son was my grandfather who ended up going to Penn. So from the cook, you have, you know, his grandson was a Penn-educated, you know, graduate student. What brought him to Penn? I mean, you said there was 100 uh, students that came. First of all, what was going on in China at the time that they would send 100 students over here for education? The Qing Dynasty ended. Imperial China ended in 1911. That was the Great Revolution. The generation of young people during that time were very much uh, committed to making China strong as a nation. And so my grandfather was born in 1894. He was educated by missionaries in the city of Fuzhou, who then sent him to Shanghai for, for his university. He went to St. John's University in Shanghai, which was, they like to think of themselves as the Harvard of China. And so uh, the St. John's was run by the Episcopal missionaries. Uh, many from Philadelphia, in fact. And at St. John's, the curriculum was taught in English. Uh, when my, my grandfather graduated from St. John's, the missionaries, the Episcopal missionaries, sent him to seminary in Philadelphia. So that's how he ended up in Philadelphia. He attended the, the seminary, uh, which had this reciprocity with the University of Pennsylvania. So any seminarian could automatically enroll at Penn. So my grandfather was his goal, his dream, was to get his doctorate uh, at Penn uh, in philosophy. But that dream was interrupted abruptly. So my grandfather had been here for two years, and he got a call, he got a, a, a letter, he got a most likely a telegram from home from his father saying, we want you to come home. We have selected a bride for you to marry. So it was an arranged marriage. And my, my grandfather, as I said, he was part of this generation that really wanted to build China up. And, uh, you know, at the time, uh, in the 1900s, early 1900s, there was a wave of Chinese students coming to America to study. 1900 was the Boxer Rebellion. China lost that. China was forced to pay foreign countries for, for their, their losses. And that money to the United States was really the pool of money for scholarships. So a lot of these scholars who came to the United States in the early 1900s were paid via money, the indemnity fund from the Boxer Rebellion. Well, who was fighting against who in the Boxer Rebellion? The Boxer Rebellion was in Beijing in 1900. The Boxers were this, this group of kind of rebellious outliers, and they were very anti-foreign. Uh, you know, they, they attacked the foreign legation in Beijing slaughtering hundreds. Uh, the foreign government sent military troops into to Beijing to fight the boxers, who had the tacit support of the empress at the time. So, it, uh, you know, there was a, a, a bloody battle for, for weeks in the summer of 1900. 
China lost, and they were forced to pay uh, money to the foreign powers. As I said, the United States, instead of accepting that money, put it into a fund and said, use it to educate a population, uh, you know, a generation of your Chinese uh, in the West. So my grandfather was part of that migration. So in 1918, on this very ship, the SS Nanjing, when he was sailing from Shanghai to San Francisco, of the 500 passengers, more than 100 were Chinese graduate students, you know, on their way to like Michigan and Harvard and Columbia. You say in here they, they were China's best and brightest mm -hmm. graduates of top colleges bound yep. for elite universities in the United States to study engineering, finance, medicine, law, political science, mining, agriculture, sociology, philosophy, and literature. And with all those things, how did the, the Chine, Chinese government, which was not Christian, perceive somebody going there and studying theology and coming back as a, as in, a in bishop? My, in my grandfather's case, he was not one of the boxer scholars, but he was actually being underwritten by the Episcopal Church. So the Episcopal missionaries ran St. John's University, and they very much wanted to increase the ranks of Chinese clerics. At the, through much of the history of the Protestant missions, especially the big denominational churches like the Anglicans, the Episcopals, there was a very big problem because a lot of the top clerics were foreign. And they wanted to remove kind of the foreign veneer and train more, more Chinese clerics. There were Chinese bishops and Chinese priests, but they needed to increase the ranks. So that's why in 1918, my grandfather was sent to the United States in order to study to become a priest. Were there times during these these years, during the the empire and then the the republic before Mao came along, that that there were varying degrees of resistance or acceptance of Christianity in China? Um, there was always uh, uh, pushback because of the foreignness of Christianity. Let me give you an example. This is something I discovered in my research that no one in the family knew about, but the 1920s was a period of really rising nationalism in China, a real sense of, we want China to be strong and independent. We hear about make America great again. It was really make China great again. There was this movement of nationalism. And part of that was an anti-foreign sentiment. And part of that became expressed as anti-Christian. 1927, Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist leader, was leading a armed movement called the Northern Expedition where they were trying to consolidate China. There were a lot of warlords. There were a lot of pockets of military leaders and they were trying to build a more cohesive China. So they began moving north. That's why it's called the Northern Expedition from the city of Canton. When they got to Fuzhou, they, they won easily. Now the nationalists had an alliance with the communists at the time. And the communists were particularly anti-foreign. So in Fuzhou, there was a lot of uh, agitation, a lot of violence, a lot of protest. And uh, on March 24th, 1927, there was a mob of anti-foreign agitators fomented by some, some communist instigators. And they wanted to make trouble that day. They needed to find a scapegoat, someone they could parade through the streets. and, and they captured my grandfather, who was, you know, a young uh, Anglican priest, but very visible. He was dean of the new cathedral, the Anglican cathedral in Fuzhou. So in the morning, they captured him. They put a noose around his neck. 
uh, a placard on his chest that said running dog of the foreigners and a dunce cap on his head. And for a day, they paraded him through the streets and they kept trying, they taunted him, they, they smacked him around, they tried to get him to renounce his faith. Because if they could get him to renounce his Christian faith, that would have been a huge victory. He refused. And so for a day, he endured this, this, this humiliation and, and violence. And again, the amazing thing is, is he never told his children about this. Where'd you get that story? Uh, there is a very well-known researcher, a professor at the University of Alberta. This is the true story. I found this story in his footnotes. You know, I opened up his book. He wrote a, uh, you know, a very important book about the Protestants of Fucho. And I opened it up and I saw my grandfather's name in the index. And then I went to the footnotes and it's like, he's describing this incident. Uh, I contacted Rev, uh, Ryan Dunch is the professor's name. And he basically then gave me kind of the, the catalyst for going deep to, to trying to find out what happened. So what I did is I started going through the Anglican church records. And indeed, there was a lot of discussion about this very incident. There were letters that were written. There was a report back to the London office describing this. And, you know, this is the journalist in me, you know, kicking in. So what I then did is I thought, okay, if there was this day-long protest, I wonder if anyone covered it. And indeed, Reuters had a story about it. And then I'm thinking, well, if the journalists and the missionaries are talking about this, I wonder what the diplomats are saying. Fucho was a port city and had a consulate. So I went to London, I went to the archives in London, uh, the Royal Archives, and I went through the, the records of the uh, consulate and I found, indeed, I found a report from that day describing that incident. And the, the, uh, the diplomat, the British diplomat at the time, even described that you know, some of the people in the mob had pistols with them. So I gathered up all this information. You know, uh, I looked at, at um, diaries that were written. There was a, a woman, an American woman, who was president of a college in Fuzhou during this incident where they took my grandfather, paraded him around town, and actually took him to her college. And I read her letters to her mother and her diary. So, you know, as a journalist, then you take all of this, and that's how I created a narrative on this. My book is narrative nonfiction. It's not a scholarly book. It's not fully a memoir. It's a reported memoir. So I wrote it like a story, and I want people to, to, to see it that way. When you were growing up, were there any Chinese traditions in your family? My father was a very bad Chinese father, I have to say. Uh, he came to Philadelphia, was working at Temple and other hospitals, but we lived outside of the city. We lived in Rydal, and my mother was Italian, Catholic too. So uh, we didn't grow up surrounded by a lot of other Chinese families. We were always the only. You know, in grade school, uh, you know, uh, high school, there was, you know, the Lin girls and then maybe uh, another Chinese family at the all-girls school I went to in Philadelphia. So I didn't grow up with a lot of Chinese traditions, and I also did not grow up with a deep understanding of my Chinese roots, which makes this whole book kind of ironic in a way. Well, you were uh, an Asian reporter, bureau chief for the Inquirer for a time. Did, I, did you learn to speak Chinese? Um, uh, I'm also very bad at Chinese. I have tried to speak Chinese and I'm a bad language student, so I speak enough Chinese to get myself in trouble. I joined the Inquirer in 1983, and I, I held many uh, postings as a national correspondent. I was based in New York, I was based in Washington, and then in 1996, 
the newspaper sent me to China, and that was really my lifelong dream. I wanted to be a foreign correspondent in Beijing more than anything. So uh, I have uh, a husband who's a journalist also, an editor at Men's Health Magazine in Allentown, and my two children, and we packed our bags and we headed to Beijing. This was 1996, and I stayed there from 1996 until the end of 1999, reporting for the Inquirer, which at the time was owned by Knight Ritter newspapers, so it was the whole chain. Did you travel all around China? While I did, you were there? yes. Did you go back to the village or the city where your family came from? At the time that I was working in China, one of my cousins, who I became very close to, Terry, she immigrated with her mother to Australia. Her father had relatives in Australia, but she uh, was a very successful businesswoman and was hired by a multinational company to go to China to represent them. Terry and I did a lot of trips together where we were revisiting sites from the family past. So in Shanghai, we went to the missionary school where our grandmother had been a student. We went to Fuzhou. Uh, we, we saw the Trinity College where my grandfather attended uh, and where he was the first Chinese president. We went to the Lin Ancestral Hall. We found the, the, you know, the graves of my grandparents as well as the gravesite of Watchman Nee. So, Terry also, she is in her uh, mid-60s now, but she was a teenager when the Cultural Revolution started. And you have to understand, it was a time of total chaos and anarchy. Schools closed. And so she was in middle school and had nothing to do. Mao then urged all the middle school students and high school students to go to the countryside to learn from peasants. So at age 16, Terry packed her bags with her classmates and went to remote northeastern China to a village where she had where she had enough training in first aid and rudimentary, you know, medicine where she was a barefoot doctor doing like, you know, minor first aid, but she was also delivering babies at age 16. Her mother was an obstetrician and had kind of given her a crash course. I bring this up because one of the trips that Terry and I took when I lived in China was she took me back to the village where she spent seven years in the countryside as a teenager, working as a barefoot doctor and as a farmer, learning from peasants. I did an article, a long magazine piece for the Inquirer about her return because there were villagers who still remembered her and ran up to her when she came into the village and said, hey, remember when you took care of me? You know, remember when I had that sprained ankle? Remember when you delivered my baby? And it was just an amazing moment because she had become such a success. And these people, you know, were still in the village living a very simple life. When you went there for the first time in 1979, you stayed in the family house. What was it like? What kind of building was it? My, my family, my father's family lived in the international settlement. So Shanghai, uh, because it was one of the first port cities to open to the West, really was a very international enclave. And the international settlement was, was governed by the British and the Americans. Um, and the, the landscape of the city was very Western. Uh, Shanghai is famous for something called the Bund. That's the waterfront along the Huangpu River. And all the big banks and insurance companies and trading houses have their headquarters there. Uh, if you didn't know it, you would think that you were in a European city. Um, my, my grandfather took his family to Shanghai in 1932. In the international settlement, they lived in what in Philadelphia we would call a row house or a trinity. It looked like uh, the British called them terraced homes. So they were very simple 
modern Western style houses. And uh, this would have been built in like the early 1900s and my, my father's family still lived there when we went there in 1979. Uh, this is off the subject, but what was the food like? Really good. Uh, <laughs> was it like Chinese food that you get? Yeah. Not at all. It's it's totally different. It's 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 much lighter. Um, Chinese food in in Philadelphia, you know, has a thicker consistency. So uh, when we stayed with them, you know, they were cooking for us. Um, but it's interesting. This was 1979. There was a real dearth of fresh vegetables because there wasn't a market economy yet. So you had to go to state-run markets and state-run food stores to get your supplies. So it was very limited. Now, of course, you know, it, it's changed completely, but that change didn't happen until like 1980s. You said that when you visited there, your, your relatives talked to your father at night and said, do you realize what we've been through? What had they been through? Um, well, it was only one relative who would tell him because the others were too afraid. What they had just been through was the Cultural Revolution. And that was a period where if you had Western connections, if you were a religious person, Christian, um, if you were educated, you were deemed as being, you know, old-fashioned and wrong. And you were, uh, a lot of times, you were the subject uh, of, of violence. So there was one night in particular at the start of the Cultural Revolution in August 1966 where three groups of, of people came to my father's house and ransacked it. They took away all their furniture. They took away my cousin's piano. They took away anything of value. They stripped them of everything they owned. This went on for an entire night, three groups. Uh, some of the, the people who came, the attackers, were red guards from the factories, from the companies where my, my uncles worked. So uh, for my, my grandmother in particular, because her brother was in jail. I mean, he was in prison. There's Watchman. Watchman Nee, and he was a counter-revolutionary. She was constantly interrogated by the authorities, and she was forced to kneel in, in the lane where they lived and confess her sins to her neighbors, her sins being that she was from a bad family and that her brother was a counter-revolutionary. And they tried to make her renounce her faith, but she actually uh, refused to do that. And her refrain would be, what have I done? What have I done wrong? So again, my family story is unique, but not. There are millions and millions of Chinese people today who have similar, uh, had similar uh, horrific experiences during the Cultural Revolution. That was your grandmother you were just talking about? Yes. And her brother was Watchman Nee. Nee. And right. what was he in jail for? The government viewed him as a counter-revolutionary. He was a well-known He was minister. a well-known Christian, and he had 80,000, 70,000 people who were his followers uh, in 800 towns, villages, and cities. So he actually could influence a lot of people if he wanted to. So I, my analysis, my, my theory, is that he was viewed as a threat. And basically, uh, you know, they, they came up with a case against him uh, he was charged with economic crimes. He was charged with being a spy. Uh, and those were the reasons he was sent away for, for 20 years. My grandfather was also accused of being an American spy during the Cultural Revolution, and he was not. How did he not get put, put in jail? My grandfather? Your grandfather. That's actually a very interesting question. I mean, um, he was not... Um, seen as much of a political risk as Watchman Nee, and I think that's why. 
in my grandfather, you know, when I, when I investigated what happened to the family and why, one of the things I found out is that for him, his trouble actually started immediately after 1949. And a big, That's when the communists took over? Yes, and a big reason was more political than religious, and that is he was aligned with the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church. The Episcopal Church was very much seen as American. And his mentor was Bishop Y.Y. Tsu. Bishop Y.Y. Tsu was very tight with many of the American bishops and missionaries. What happened is that uh, 1950s, the Korean War, we call it the Korean War. In China, it was called the war to resist the United States and aid Korea. So if you had alliance uh, with the Americans, you were viewed in suspicion. And I, I think the fact that my grandfather was an Episcopal priest, you know, aligned with American missionaries and had two sons now living in America probably didn't do him any good. And so he was kind of pushed aside in terms of the church and the hierarchy. And he, he didn't have a church, he wasn't a pastor anymore, and he just kind of filled in when needed. Were the churches allowed to stay open? They were until um, the start of the Cultural Revolution and all churches were closed. Would you explain, you used the word scholar a little while ago, and you're talking here about the examination system and the thousand-year tradition of that and what it meant to be a scholar. Can you talk about that, what the education system was? China, for centuries and centuries, has always <clears throat> held scholars in high esteem. And before, uh, in the olden days, you had to be, uh, your scholarship had to be grounded in Confucius and you had to study the works of Confucius. And there would be these tests given at the city level, the provincial level, and then the national level. And they were based on Confucianism. Uh, and if you passed these tests, you became a scholar. But scholars were also then enlisted into the ranks of the bureaucracy. So it, to be a scholar was very much something you wanted to do. Um, in the late, in the early 1900s, though, the, the whole system, the examination system, ended in 1905, I think it was. And at that time, there was a real rush for Western education, which is why a lot of Chinese desired to go to the United States to study and desired going to missionary universities like St. John's. Did you get to know your cousin Julia, is that <coughs> her name, the piano player? Um, I'm very close now with two of my cousins, Julia and Terry. They were sisters. Julia immigrated to Chicago and has a very active, uh, uh, she's a, a piano tutor, and she's a very active uh, business, and many of her students are Chinese. But Julia went to the conservatory in Shanghai, and in the 1960s, during the Cultural Revolution, she was not allowed to play any Western music. Classical music was banned. The Conservatory of Music in Shanghai was one of the preeminent in the country. The students were not allowed to play their instruments. So for, for many years, you know, 66, 67, 68, all they had was political indoctrination. So your cousin was a good piano player but could not read music? My cousin Julia is one of those musical marvels. She has perfect pitch. And she was, uh, she played piano from the time she was very young. She was also kind of lazy because she was so good. She didn't have to really work at reading music. She could hear a piece in her head and play it. So when she was about 11 or 12, she auditioned for the Shanghai Conservatory, where they gave the, the students a piece of mu music and they had to learn it, come back and audition. 
Julia couldn't read music. So her mother played the piece on the piano. Julia heard it, practiced it, auditioned, and was accepted into the conservatory. There were about 2,000 students who auditioned, and only 10 were picked for the piano program. She was one of them. She could not read music. She learned very quickly, and she was just you know, a marvelous prodigy. And part of the education in the early days was learning Western music, Mozart and Bach? So uh, in the, you know, when, when Julia was a child, so she was born uh, 1949, I think, you, they were, people were still able to perform and play classical music. So she grew up with the classics, Chopin, Mozart, Beethoven. But then during the Cultural Revolution, it was deemed bourgeois. And so you were not allowed. So they took away her piano. They took away all of her sheet music. They burned it. They, they you know, broke her album. So she had nothing. When your family was living in Philadelphia and writing back and forth to China, did, did they keep the letters? My mother is Italian. And every month we would receive a letter from my grandfather and he would, he would tell us what was happening to the family. Thank God for my mother, not my busy father, because she saved every single letter that he wrote. Uh, and so when I was writing this book, I wanted to capture, as I said, it's told as a narrative, it's told as a story, and I wanted to capture what life was like inside the family home. So because I had these letters, I could create scenes. Uh, because my grandfather would tell us, you know, what was happening. And I, I was able to then use these letters to kind of recreate their lives. So I have an envelope, and it has, you know, uh, many years' worth of letters in it. And, and again, thanks to my Italian-American mother from Camden, not my Shanghainese father, uh, I have this, this record of their lives. How did your mother's Italian family feel about her marrying a Chinese That's a very person? good question. They accepted him from the get-go, immediately. My, my grandfather on the Italian side had immigrated from the United States, uh, from, excuse me, from Italy, from Fujo. Uh, and he worked at the naval shipyard. Um, when my, my mother was a nurse at Temple Hospital, my father was a resident, and that's how she met him. When she took him home to Camden, to Fourth Street, very tight-knit Italian community, um, they tell the story how neighbors were like craning their necks to see my father coming up to the doorstep because they had never seen a Chinaman. And uh, it, was, it was very much, uh, you know, they were different races. But my grandfather and grandmother on my Italian side accepted my father immediately, welcomed him into their home. So when they got married in 1953, you know, there were still laws in some states against the races marrying. When uh, your, your grandfather, who's kind of the pivotal character, mm -hmm. and what was a, a normal day-to-day -day life like for him? What was his very, job? Very busy. So if you look at the period from like 1930s, 1940s, before, you know, the 1949 communist uh, victory, he had two jobs, basically. He was a principal of a school that was run by the foreigners. Now, remember, the foreigners kind of governed Shanghai. And they had schools for the expatriate kids, but they also had a few schools for the Chinese. So my grandfather was the principal of one of those schools, which paid really well. And then he was assistant pastor of a church called St. Peter's, which was run by the Chinese congregants. So they, they supported this church financially. It was totally independent of the, of, of the missions. 
And so he was very proud of that because he was a very patriotic Chinese person. And so for him, life was incredibly busy because he was principal of a school, he was assistant pastor, which meant he did you know, Sunday service, and he was also editor of a magazine called The Chinese Churchman, which was Chinese language, and it went out to all the Anglican and Episcopal members uh, of the church in China. So he was, he was a very busy man. What happened in Shanghai during World War II? Very difficult time. Um, the, there was then a, a puppet government. Um, during World War II, the missionaries, if they were still there, were sent to, to camps. So there was a period like where the British and the Americans were all you know, sent off to the internment camps. My grandfather refused to work for the Japanese-supported government. Oh, so that Shanghai. was the puppet government. I mean, yeah. the puppet government of so, the Japanese. Yeah. So they were they were uh, you know loyal to the Japanese, uh, and so he refused. That meant that he lost his school job, which was the thing that paid his you know paid for his livelihood. He had no work. the The church job was not paying. The school job was well paying, and he refused to work for the Japanese uh, government. And so he went to work for his brother-in-law, Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee's family ran a pharmaceutical business. They had a factory. They were making, you know, vitamins. They were making uh, antibiotics. And so he took a job with with his brother-in-law and worked there during the course of the war. When the war ended, he left, and he went back to. He actually then went to work for the Episcopal and Anglican Church in China, their headquarters. Did he ever have to during the Japanese occupation or, or during the Cultural Revolution or during any of the communist era have to just give up the church and get a, a yes. regular job? So, so uh, well, during World War II, the churches were still open. During the Cultural Revolution, they were not. So my grandfather, for many years, like in the prime of his life, when he was in his 60s, had no work. Um, my father and uncle, who lived in the United States, really had to support them. So they would send the family through back channels because, he, you know, the United States and China did not have relations, which meant you couldn't wire money back and forth. So they would send money to a relative in Hong Kong who then sent money to the family in Shanghai. And my uncle in, in the United States is also a doctor. So my, my father, uh, he and my father really helped to support the family during these difficult years when, again, there was real anarchy and chaos. Do you today have relatives still living in that city? All of my relatives have immigrated. Um, there are some in Sydney, some in Chicago, some in San Jose. So they've all left. None in China at all? Uh, not of my my first cousins, no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and my, my aunt, uh, you know, she she and her daughter, my, my cousin Terry, they left around 1988, I think, 1989. Was it easy to leave then? They had rel so they, you know, there were American relatives and there were also Australian relatives, and so that made it easier for them to leave. How did your father end up emigrating to the U.S.? Um, he went to St. John's Medical School, St. John's in China, in China, mm -hmm. in Shanghai, and St. John's had a very tight affiliation with Penn, the University of Pennsylvania's medical school, and there was a doctor, Josiah McCracken, who had worked in Shanghai at St. John's Medical School for many, many years had returned in retirement to Philadelphia, he helped to connect many of the Chinese medical students with internships in the United States. So through a, a contact of Dr. McCracken, my father, who was just finishing medical school in Shanghai, got on a plane with his brother, who was also a doctor, and ended up in Atlantic City. 
at the Atlantic City Memorial Hospital, where he spent a year as an intern. And he met Katherine Hepburn when he was in uh, <laughs> That's Connecticut, a, was it? I had to get that into the book somehow. <laughs> so he spent a year in Atlantic City at the Atlantic City Memorial Hospital. Then he spent two years in Hartford, Connecticut, doing a surgical residency. There was a doctor who took a real interest in my father, a young urologist, who had an interest in Shanghai because after World War II, this urologist was on a Navy hospital ship, which was stationed in the Huangpu River uh, of Shanghai. And so one time, uh, you know, uh, the doctor said to my father, I'd like for you to come home with me on the weekend. We have a house on, on Long Island Sound. I'd like for you to meet my sister. She just made a movie about China. So my father, you know, they pull up to this big house on the water, and in walks Catherine Hepburn, because the doctor was Dr. Hepburn. He and his father were both urologists in, in Hartford. So my father spent the weekend, you know, as the guest of the Hepburn family and, and met Catherine Hepburn <laughs> and followed her around the golf course as they were playing nine holes. How long did your grandfather live? My grandfather died in 1973. And so he was in his late 70s. What was going on in China at the time? It was not a good time. In fact, he had ceased writing to us by then. As I said, he wrote to us every month. But there was a, a very definite time during the Cultural Revolution when the letters just ended. And we you know, later realized that these were difficult times. For him, too, I mentioned that he was accused of being a spy. So there was a group uh, you know, that, that claimed he was an American spy. And uh, you know, it, it just made life difficult. He was not. Um, but you know, for several weeks, he was taken away. And there, there were like interrogation sessions and things like that. You have a scene where he was forced to uh, accuse the, the Bishop Tzu, who had been his mentor. So in 1949 is when the communists took over China. There was a process of a few years where uh, the churches in general, um, with encouragement from the new communist regime, wanted to prove their loyalty to this new regime. And it wasn't enough just to say it. You had to show it. So my grandfather, through the entirety of his life, wrote about his feelings of patriotism uh, towards China, the, the people. And, and I have articles and articles about this. So when the, when the communists came in, I mean, he was definitely willing to, you know, support the new regime. But it wasn't enough, again, just to say that. You had to show it. And what that meant were there was a series of what they called denunciation sessions for all Christian groups, not only the Anglicans, and, and uh, it was also the Little Flock, which was Watchman Nee's group. So my grandfather uh, was, was told he needed to denounce Bishop Y.Y. Tsu, who had left the country by then. He was gone. Uh, but Bishop Y.Y. Tsu had so many American connections. Like at one time during World War II, he had been a chaplain for American forces out in the western part of China. So because my grandfather was aligned with this one bishop who was seen as kind of anti-communist, pro-American, he was then told, you have to stand up in front of thou a thousand people and denounce him, which he did. He had no choice. But it didn't hurt him, Bishop Tzu, because he was, he was no gone. in China. He was gone. But for my grandfather, he had to call Bishop Tzu, uh, you know, a running dog of foreigners, which was the same attack that he received in 1927 when he was a young priest, which is why the subtitle of my book is Betrayal and Forgiveness. It really goes beyond my family. There was so much betrayal going on among people 
in order to survive in this changing political environment. How are Christians treated in China today, accepted or not accepted? Christianity today in China is thriving. Um, China has one of the fastest growing Christian populations, and there are some people who estimate that by 2025, it could have the largest Christian population in the world. It's thriving on two levels. There are official registered churches which are doing well and growing, but then there are churches that choose not to register with the government. Those are unofficial churches, sometimes called house churches. And a lot of people who still follow the writings and teachings of Watchman Nee prefer worshiping in house churches. So in China, there's actually a very vibrant church scene. There are rules. Um, there, China allows freedom of religious association in their constitution, but there are a lot of rules. And they do want to keep close control, close tabs on, on churches. So in a, China's a huge country. <laughs> And, and things can be happening in one city that aren't happening in another. So things could be very restrictive in one province towards unofficial house churches and very kind of laissez-faire in another province. And that's very much what I found when I went back in 2015 to report the last part of the book. Uh, and I found that, you know, while in one part of China at the time there was a lot of uh, you know, action against churches where they were tearing down crosses and, you know, uh, taking action against pastors. Where I was, there was more of a feeling of openness um, that could change in a moment. But at that particular point in time, that's what I found. When did it change from being completely unacceptable to being more tolerated? So um, churches were closed during the Cultural Revolution. They reopened, the government announced in 1979, and that began a gradual process. What we're seeing today, this, this real revival of, of Christianity in China, really has been in the last 20 years. Um, and I, you know, I am a reporter, I'm, I'm not a, a theologian, I'm not an expert, but you know, in talking to people who are attracted to these house churches, they're looking for something meaning in their lives. They're looking for some sort of spiritual grounding. They used to believe in socialism. Uh, and now China is no longer really, a, uh, you know, it, it's kind of, kind of a mixed country when it comes to its government. Um, and so people are looking for that spiritual ballast in their lives, and a lot of them are t turning not only to Christianity, but also to Buddhism, Confucianism, folk religions. So there's a revival of all types of religion in China. Did the change happen when Mao Zedong died? Yes, exactly. So when Mao died in 1976, that marked the end of the Cultural Revolution. When Deng Xiaoping took over, that started kind of a loosening and the reopening of churches. So 1979 and onward. So your, your most recent trip to China was 2015? 2015. I go back to China on a regular basis. Uh, you know, I worked there from 96 to 99. I go back, uh, you know, every year or so. Uh, and when I was doing my research, I would, uh, you know, spend couple weeks here and there doing doing my my work. Is it much different now from when you first saw it in oh, 1979? Different world, just a different world. When we went in 1979, it was as if China had been kind of in a, you know, a Rip Van Winkle stage. Like it was just so backwards, uh, you know, in terms of the cars, you know, clothing, the economy. And now China is so modern that it puts us to shame. You can ride a bullet train from Shanghai to 
to Beijing in five hours, you know, a trip that used to take 20 hours. So in, in many ways, the physical environment of China is very modern compared to the United States. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Jennifer Lin. She is the author of this book, Shanghai Faithful, Betrayal and Forgiveness in a Chinese Christian Family. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.